Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. You know, this morning I'd like us to crack open again that book that, uh, or that letter that when you open it, it says better. And so if you would, turn over to Hebrews chapter 7, because we're going to look at uh, a letter that that describes for us not just uh, the fact that the Christian faith and that Jesus Christ are better in some things, but I think really uh, throughout this letter, if you're getting the tenor of it, it tells us that we're, we have a faith that's better in everything, at least spiritually speaking. Uh, the writer has just summed up the first section of his book in chapters 1 through 6 when he exhorted us to enter this rest that he's talked about. And you remember that the rest is a place where we come where we apply our faith to His promises in a real situation and it works. And He warned us that if we don't do that, we're in grave danger. And so chapter 6 ends with that warning that uh, Bill Wellens talked about. And the reason I'm on two weeks in a row is Bill's still recovering uh, from that message. <laughs> now we're into chapter 7 and 8 and 9 and 10. and. This is a whole different section. In fact, the writers will tell us uh, that you read theologically that we're in somewhat of a parenthesis. Uh, we finished with a warning. Now we have these four chapters where he is going to tell us in a acutely Jewish style, because these are Jewish readers, that what they have in Christ is better in every way than what they had in Judaism. So chapter 7 will be that we have a better priesthood. Chapter 8 is that we have a better covenant or contract that we're under with God. Uh, chapter 9, we have a better temple. It's not a, of stone, but it's bigger than that. And then in chapter 10, we have a better sacrifice. And then when you get to 10, when he closes all that up, he'll issue another warning, and then off we go again in our pursuit of growing up in Christ. So this morning, we're going to be looking at the fact of what we have in Christ as being better from uniquely tinted Jewish eyes. You know, when I was growing up as a young boy, I remember growing up in Louisiana, that uh, with, especially with some of my relatives being from Texas, is that Texans during those days always celebrated the fact that they were better, bigger and better in everything. And uh, last week we found out that wasn't true, but, <laughs> but it was true in those days, the biggest state in the Union and all those kind of things. And, Reminded me of a story I heard recently of this uh, Texan, this rancher who was calling uh, his banker or a banker in uh, New York to set up a loan. And after he had a few minutes of discourse with this banker, uh, he really took a liking to this guy. And so he said, hey, why don't you and your wife fly in from New York and uh, let's spend some time together on the weekend. What I'll do is I'll pick you up and I'll take you to our son's ranch just outside Lubbock. It's an incredible ranch, 100,000 acres. It's got... Uh, all kinds of uh, purebred cattle, incredible racehorses. We even have some exotic animals. And my son earned it all by himself. Well, that really impressed the uh, banker. And he said, gosh, your son must really be a successful businessman. If you don't mind me asking, how old is he? And the Texan said, well, he's eight years old, as a matter of fact. He said, eight years old? How did he earn all that by himself? And the Texan said, well, he made four A's and one B. Now that's bigger and better, isn't it? 
You know, these Hebrew Christians, they were wrestling with a, with a real important question. They had moved into the faith, but they hadn't moved very far in the faith. And so they were wrestling with a decision that this writer knows clearly about whether they were going to shrink back or whether they were going to go on and radically embrace the Christian faith despite circumstances. That's why at the end of the message last week in all the services, I asked you whether you were willing to accept Jesus' lifestyle as your lifestyle. See, that's a different question than will you receive Christ who's going to do this for you and that for you and forgive you of your sin and guarantee this, make a contract with you, be faithful to you. But there's a much more difficult question that moves us into the marketplace and in decisions, into situations like David Petty is now in, but things that go even farther beyond even those kind of job losses or tragedies, but the whole cultivation of our soul and our spirit. Will you receive the lifestyle of Jesus Christ? That's what this letter is all about. And so this writer, now that he gets to chapter 7 in what I would call classical Texas style, will argue through the next four chapters that whatever they had in Judaism, Jesus Christ is bigger and He's better in every way. So let's look at the first three verses of chapter 7. Let's start to work our way through this chapter. He says, and I might mention he ended chapter 6 with this mention of Melchizedek, and I've mentioned him several times, and each time some of you are wondering, who is this guy, this Melchizedek? Well, now though his name has been dropped in the last few chapters at different points just to kind of tantalize us, now in chapter 7 we formally meet who this man is. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace, or it means king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he abides a priest perpetually. Melchizedek, the mysterious Melchizedek. Here he is. Well, let's talk about who this guy is. It tells us in verse 1, first of all, that he's a priest of God a true priest of God, but uniquely even before Israel had a priesthood. In fact, this guy is in Abraham's day. Remember, it's out of Abraham that comes the Jewish nation. So here, even before there's a Levitical priesthood, we meet a priest, a true priest of God, even before Israel was a thought-up concept in the mind of man as a nation, much less as a priesthood, as having a priesthood. And yet, like this verse says, and says in another place in Scripture, Abraham's response to him by how he engaged him demonstrated that Melchizedek was a legitimate, true priest of God. Secondly, it mentions there that he was also a king. And that's interesting because in the nation of Israel, kings and priests were kept separate. They weren't joined together. You remember they have 12 tribes in Israel. And of those 12 tribes, two were uniquely picked to be a special blessing to that nation. One tribe was the tribe of Levi, and only those people who could trace their lineage back to Levi could become priests in Israel. Then there was the tribe of Judah, and only those who could trace their lineage back to Judah could be kings in Israel. 
But no one could be a king and a priest. These tribes were kept separate. And by the way, that's why Jesus Christ, when he's introduced to us in the Gospel of Matthew, which is a gospel written to Jewish people, and in the Gospel of Luke, which is written to the Greeks, we have the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and it traces Jesus Christ in an authoritative manner back to the person of Judah, so that he's part of the tribe of Judah or the kingly line. Therefore, he, has the, he is an heir to being king over Israel. But Melchizedek was different. Melchizedek, in our passage, tells us that he was both a priest and a king. And uh, in verse 3, we find something unique about him that some have, I think, maybe bl blown out of proportion. And that is, that is, it says that he had no father or mother, no beginning of days or end of life. And, and some have taken that to mean, well, he was an angel or he was a theophany, the, a pre-incarnate um, uh, manifestation of Jesus Christ or so on and so forth. Um, I really think a better and more legitimate interpretation at, at, at this point is just it says, as uh, it says here, it says he had uh, no mother, no father, and then it says without genealogy. That's the key phrase. He didn't have a genealogy. And because he didn't have a genealogy, it's, it, it was impossible to trace where he came from. And see, if you were in Israel and you didn't have a genealogy, you couldn't be a priest or a king. And yet this guy had no genealogy, and he was a priest and a king. And so we didn't know where he came from. The other thing is, is that if you'll notice, he had no end, it says, of life. That is, there was no record of his death, no death certificate. Uh, some of what we see even now with the MIA controversy still raging over in North Vietnam, those pilots who were downed, and if you remember when Pat and Cindy McClanahan were on our staff, Cindy's dad has still never been found in North Vietnam as a fighter pilot. And you can't put closure there. There's no death certificate. There's no sense that he's finished. So in a sense, he still lives. And that was kind of the argument here with the writer. Because there's no death certificate, no sense of when he ended, it's like he continues to abide in a perpetual way. Melchizedek stepped out of history at one point in Genesis 14. He meets Abraham. There's a brief encounter, and then he disappears without a beginning and without an end. That's the argument of the writer. Notice it says, too, he was a king of Salem. In Abraham and Melchizedek's day, Palestine was pretty much of a rural community. And this city, Salem, was probably just a small city, but, but evidently Melchizedek was the ruler of that city and the priest to that city. And probably the reason he got his name Melchizedek is because he was a man of great integrity. Notice his name means king of righteousness. And usually they gave names based on proven character rather than hoped for character. So this was a guy of deep righteousness. Later on, um, the Jewish nation, as Joseph moves the people of God back up into the land and they inherit the land and then they begin to get their covenant from God and then they create their temple and their priesthood and all that. They settle on a city and they build their temple there and it's called Jeru Salem. Salem means peace. Jeru means possession of peace. And that's what the Jews did. They possessed the city and it came to the possession of peace. And so in Abraham's day, when Israel was not a nation, it was just a dream. It was something hoped for by 
a shepherd who God had promised his descendants would be as the stars in the heavens. But, but Israel itself was just a wish. You had this city, Jerusalem, being ruled over by a king of tremendous integrity, a man whose name means righteousness, and a man who served both as a king and a priest, reigning over a city whose name was to be the city of peace, and thereby he becomes a tremendous prophecy of a future event. Do you see the picture there? Does it begin to paint a picture for you? See, it was real important. It doesn't mean so much to us now, but it was real important for a Jewish Christian to know that what he had embraced was legitimate and that he could even find stuff about it in the Old Testament because all he had heard about is the Levitical priesthood. But what this writer wants these Jewish Christians to know is Jesus being in a priesthood of Melchizedek, that's not something I thought up over the top, top of my head. That's not a comic book character. That's somebody that's in your Old Testament. You can find him there in Genesis 15 or 14. And he's unique. And it means that God had something bigger than the Levitical priesthood and better than the Levitical priesthood for you. And that's why I want to tell you about Melchizedek. The most important thing in this opening three verses for us is in verse 3. Notice the little phrase, made like the Son of God. Made like means to produce a copy of or a facsimile or made to resemble. That's what that word made to means. In other words, Melchizedek is a prototype of Christ. He's an advanced copy of Jesus Christ, the king and the priest, because that's who Jesus is, both king and priest, who would one day rule over this earth in His millennial kingdom as the king of proven righteousness, ruling over this earth in a city that's called the possession of peace, which has never been peaceful, but will be in that day. But who at this point in time is just simply content to be king and priest over those people who would believe in Him. You know, I find it interesting. God always has a sense of humor, but I do find it interesting that in our day with all the, the communication we have, especially when you think of faxes, faxes is the latest communication piece, but you know, you take an original into a fax machine and you send a copy to a friend so they can have a copy of the original that you possess. But God does it always somewhat in reverse. See, what God does is He makes the copy first and then He faxes us 2,000 years later the original. That's what he does. Same way when you think of an actor. When an actor acts on a stage as a character actor, he's usually, if it's a historical event he's acting out, it's usually something that he is trying to uh, portray an event or a character who's lived in history, and he's trying to do it as close to the real thing as possible. But in Melchizedek, what we've got is something that Hollywood could never do, and that is we get a historical actor acting out a part of a person that hasn't even lived yet and is not going to be on the scene until 2,000 years later. Does that make sense to everybody? Shake your head if it does. Just be sure I'm not wandering out there. You see that? So Melchizedek would mean nothing apart from Jesus Christ. If Melchizedek, if all we read about Melchizedek was Genesis 14 and Jesus didn't show up on the scene, he would be some strange king priest in this little two-bit town that we wouldn't even think about. 
But in Jesus Christ, suddenly Melchizedek, the copy has unbelievable meaning. And for these Jewish believers, it helps for them to say, God was already thinking this up even before He created our nation. This eternal priesthood. Well, let's look at how great Melchizedek was in Abraham's life, the father of the nation of Israel. Verse 4 says, Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choices spoils. In other words, when Abraham met this king priest, he tithed to him. Now remember that word because these verses are a little difficult to understand. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest office, they have a commandment in the law to collect a tenth or a tithe, from the people, that is, from their brethren, although they are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them, that is, Melchizedek, collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises, that is, Abraham. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Now that's an incredible statement. The lesser, Abraham, is blessed by the greater, Melchizedek who many of you probably have never heard of. You know what that tells me, by the way? It tells me that though there are tremendous saints in history that we look at as great, there are probably an equal number, if not more, that are greater that we've never heard of. You know, there are probably even some in here that might rival some of the great saints in history that you'll never be known. Nobody will ever write your name anywhere. You'll never be printed up. But because of the integrity of your life and your heart, it puts you above many, many of the greats. This Melchizedek was greater than Abraham because of the integrity and what he represented. Notice verse 8, and says, And in this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in, the case, but in that case one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And so to speak, though Abraham, even through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. For he was still in the loins of his father, when Melchizedek met Abraham. Well, let me kind of sum up what that says because it is a little bit difficult. But if you're here thinking that a tithe is just giving your money, philanthropists give money, but they don't tithe. A tithe is something unique. A tithe is an act of submission more than just a giving of money. It's a submission to God or a submission to one that you believe represents the authority of God in your life. And so what these verses are telling us about, because they're talking about tithing here, he's making an argument that for them in their day would be indisputable. It's this. In Judaism, people gave tithes to the Levitical priest. And they didn't give it because they were good guys. <laughs> they just give their money away to these guys. They gave it because they felt like these people in, in the Levitical line were the spiritual authorities in their life. And they recognized their submission to these spiritual authorities by giving a tenth of all they had and that they were legitimate, and that these priests who came from Abraham were legitimate because Abraham was legitimate. So in giving a tithe, they believed that Abraham truly was a man of God. They were showing their submission in that way. But Abraham, the father of this great nation, in whose loins all that nation at one time was, at a special moment in his life, he met somebody to whom he acknowledged spiritual authority and a legitimacy greater than his own by paying a tithe to Melchizedek. 
So verse 9 carries the argument to its logical conclusion. Notice it says, And so to speak through Abraham, even Levi, though Levi wasn't around, but he was, Jews believed in this racial solidarity that, that, that if your father, your father carried you, so whatever you, he did, you did. And he says, Even Levi, who received tithes from the people, paid tithes. So there was a place where they actually paid tithes to Melchizedek. And so it says in verse 10, For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So being in the loins of Abraham, the Levitical priest of the future, acknowledged this greater authority of Melchizedek's priesthood. And as much as these Hebrew Christians admired the Jewish priesthood of the Levitical priest, this argument says the Levitical priest at a point in time when they were in their father Abraham's loins acknowledged there's a greater priesthood than them. That's the theological argument here. And it was one that would be very convincing to the people of this day because they would go, that's what Melchizedek represents. Makes good sense. But you know, there's a personal argument here too. And to see the personal argument of how Melchizedek met Abraham, you've got to turn back to the, the moment he met him back in Genesis 14. So would you turn back there for just a moment with me? And as you're doing so, let me tell you that uh, we're turning back to a moment where Abraham lived in the land of Palestine with his nephew Lot, and if you'll remember, there came a place where they had to decide where they were going to live. And Lot looked down and saw all the riches of Sodom and all the worldly things. And he chose that. And uh, that turned out to be a spiritual calamity for him. But Abraham, having been promised that God would make him great, chose to separate himself from the corruption of the world and live on the hillsides and wait for God to bless him. In Genesis 14, what we find is, is that four kings come together and form an army and they conquer Sodom. And in conquering Sodom, they also capture Lot. And Abraham hears that his nephew Lot has been captured and so he pulls together a small army and they go out and they defeat these four great kings. And that's where we come to when we come to Genesis chapter 14. Now, according to the spoils of war, both now and both then, if you conquered somebody, then what you conquered was yours. You had the privilege of receiving the spoils of war. And so here's a great opportunity for Abraham, who, had been, who God told him, you're going to be great. Uh, your name is going to be great and all those kind of things. Now that he's conquered these four kings and, and, uh, and, and, and even conquered the city of Sodom in the process because they were part of the booty, he has this tremendous opportunity to enrich himself and enhance his reputation, take all those spoils of war, and be probably the greatest man in Palestine. But there's only one problem. The problem is that God had said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to be the one that's going to make your name great. And you already know that these things are evil, though they're very tempting. And I might mention, by the way, you and I come to those places all the time in our life, don't we? We come to a place where God has promised us something in His Word and all of a sudden something comes that looks close to what He's promised, but we know it's not His will, but it's so tempting to take it. It might be in a job opportunity. It might be in a life partner. It might be in a lot of things. But it's so easy to just reach out and grab it and think, I can do it when God says, don't do it. And so this was a tremendous temptation in Abraham's life. It was probably one of the severest tests in his life as to how he was going to live by faith or take which the culture would say is legally his. 
Well, look what happens because Melchizedek ends, enters at this point in verse 17 of this chapter. It says, Then after Abraham's return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Now he's giving him not just a blessing, but some instruction in this. And Abraham hears that, and it says he acknowledged his legitimate spiritual authority over his life in the next line. And it says, And Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth of all that he had. In effect, what Melchizedek says to Abraham or reminds Abraham is this. He says, Abraham, you don't need to waste your time enriching yourself in this way. And how does he say that? Because he says, notice in verse 19, it says, because your God is possessor of heaven and earth. Not these cheap little trinkets from Sodom. You don't need that. You don't need to give into that. You don't need to buy into the world and mix with this kind of corruption. You need to just trust me by faith and let those things go and let God bless you the way He has blessed you even in this battle by giving these people into your hands. And so it says that Abraham acknowledged this spiritual authority. He gave an act of submission and gave up those riches even though it was culturally acceptable. Now, Lot didn't learn by this occasion. He went back to Sodom, and we know his story. But look what he says. He didn't just give a tent to Melchizedek. If you go on, he gave up all because he learned his spiritual lesson. Verse 21, it says, And the king of Sodom said to Abram, after this blessing, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. See, he's learned his lesson because he's quoting his spiritual authority, isn't he? And what does he say to him? That I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. He gives it all up. He's the one that won the battle and he walked away with nothing. And then later on in chapter 15, God comes to him and reaffirms that this act of submission was the right thing to do. Because notice it says in chapter uh, chapter 15, verse 1, After these things, this event, this crisis, the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you, and your reward will be very great. The blessing of obedience. Now, I make that point and turn us back there for this purpose. As great as the victory was that Abraham achieved over these kings, that was not the greatest victory. The greatest victory with the aid of this priest that, that Abraham received was the victory over himself. Do you see that? He ruled over himself. In a tough situation like David was sharing with us where the heat is on and the pressure is great, he chose to rule over himself. That's the tremendous victory that Melchizedek helped Abraham receive. Proverbs 16.32, it says, He who rules his spirit is better than he who conquers a walled city. We could say it like this. He who rules himself is better than he who builds a corporation. He who rules himself is better than he who, who uh, uh, creates the perfect image or wins a national championship. 
You see, those things, as glamorous as they are and as culturally acceptable as they are, and necessarily, not necessarily wrong in and of themselves, become wrong if you have those things and don't rule over yourself. You miss that victory. Not only do you disappoint yourself, but you end up disappointing God as well. Abraham conquered himself. That's what a priest helped him to do. That's why the priests later on were given, the Levitical priests given to Israel, to help people conquer themselves. That's why, by the way, you and I, even to this day, need priests. Not necessarily to replace God, but to help us draw near to God and believe Him when life seems to be unraveling. Now back in chapter 5, I mentioned that an ideal priest is one who should play in your life the role of one that gives insight or instruction, helpful instruction that you might desperately need. He can be both tough and tender. He's kind of a guy who has a unique mix. He doesn't just lay the law on you, but he can cry with you at the same time while never giving up the law, what's right to do. That's the role of a priest. But his effectiveness comes when in playing that role, you listen to him and yield to him. Everyone needs a priest. And we in America are saying that, but we're not seeing it all the time. You know, America is loaded at, at this time with more priests than it's ever had in our nation's history. There are more priests running around the United States than at any other time since the founding of our country. Now, we don't call them priests. We call them instead social worker and counselor and therapist and mental health worker and psychologist and psychiatrist and support group leader. Some of them are helpful. Some of them are not. Now, I'm not against those people, by the way. I'm not saying that that's wrong to have those kind of people in our society. They're needed. Many of them are extremely helpful. But here's my fear for us as the church of Jesus Christ. And it is a very real fear, so listen closely. My fear is not that we have such people. My fear is that in having such people and the host of techniques and theories and helps that they offer, that they would subtly lead us away from the king priest who is to be at the center of our lives and they become a secondary substitute. Playing the role of the king priest, but not playing it as well, not playing it as perfectly, not giving the instruction that is clearly the right instruction, but nevertheless becoming a human intervener when what we really need is divine intervention. Now, counselors and therapists are helpful when they help us move in a direction that draws us even closer to God, but when they become substitutes, surrogates for the real thing, you've got less than better. And yet, how often people do that, even as Christians. Yes, counselors can help you cope better. I see myself as a counselor in people's lives. Yes, they can help bring understanding and insight. Yes, they can offer techniques that give you a better way of interacting or approaching people. But there's some things they can't do. And we're wanting them to do this for us. And I want you to listen because this is at the essence of the message. There's something that we want those people to desperately do for us that they can never do. They can never break your will. They can never humble your pride. They can never bring you to a place of desperate dependence 
They can't do that. They want to do that. They would like to have such power, but they're not king priest. They're just priest. They don't have that kind of authority. You know, there are times where I've had people in my office and I have offered tremendous insight. In fact, they on the other side were saying, boy, that makes sense. And we've gone on, but as I've watched them, as I approach the conclusion of all this rich insight that would help them have a better life, I can tell they're not going to do it. And I want to reach across the table and pull them over and say, can't you see what you're doing? You know, it's clear as a bell. And they walk out with all that wealth of insight and understanding and those coping techniques. And you know what they use it for? To manipulate. To just be more crafty and work in the other person so they can walk over. So they can use them. So they can stay intact. So they can have that thing to build a thicker shell so nobody can get in and break the will. Because nobody but the king priest can break the will. Bring you to a place where not my will but thine be done. Only the king priest can do that. Someone can help you make life more culpable. Someone, but no one can make it right except Jesus Christ. No one. Have we forgotten that? <laughs> Have we allowed others to come in and, and in patching up the problem think that that solves the life? We can have a person patch up the problem, but they cannot help you conquer you. That's the real fight. They can't assure you of an ultimate sense of destiny. They can't uh, help you see that there is hope even when everybody else says there is no hope. But there is a king priest who can help you do that. Who can help you conquer you. Who doesn't walk in there with uh, suggestions. He walks in with absolutes. But who has absolutes today? You know, you can go in and you can talk to a counselor and you can say, what do you think I ought to do? And a non-directive counselor will say, well, what do you think you ought to do? But the king will say, do this. <laughs> Because he knows clearly what is right and what is wrong. You can go in and talk to a counselor with a, a, a revolving moral relativism and say, I feel guilty. And he says, well, you shouldn't feel guilty. But you walk into the king priest and he'll say, you are guilty. You really are. But I can forgive you. So come on, let's hug and let's work it out. You know, there are two things that Americans desperately want today. Two things that American, America as a society desperately need. A sense of personal ethics. Don't we need ethics today? And a sense of personal peace, mental health. You know, when Melchizedek walked, he was called by two names. King of righteousness, if I could reduce that to a layman's term, that means personal ethics, right and wrong. And he was also called king of peace. Mental health. See, that's what we want but you'll never get it with a human substitute. They can help you to move that direction towards Him. They can never replace Him. And if you try, you're, in, you're bound for disappointment. These Hebrew Christians had not moved very far in their relationship with Jesus Christ, and that was their danger. Their temptation was to go back 
to men priests as a substitute for the king priest. He says it's going to be a great tragedy. Reminds me of the little boy who fell out of bed and his mother ran in there and he was crying and, and she looked at him and said, Honey, what happened to you? And uh, he turned to his mom and he said, You know, I stayed too near where I got in. What a, what a magnificent yet simple summary of the problem plaguing these people and us. Staying too near where we got in. That's the problem. Will you receive the life of Jesus Christ as your lifestyle? That's going on into the rest rather than staying near the door for a quick exit if things get too hot. That's what we're talking about here for these people. You know, the ideal Christian life was meant to create in me, in you, a deep, interactive relationship with the living God where we're getting our cues daily, where we're, we're listening to, we're responding to, just like David. You can't live like David Petty in the midst of that crisis without listening to keep that daily perspective of balance and order and direction. That's the Christian life. Because in doing that, you become a self-starter. You become a go-getter. You become a person of personal spiritual initiative. That's the goal for every Christian. Or it should be. That's what I call health care to the max because it's proactive. It's like what a lot of health care programs try to get you to do is build in health on the front end. Wellness. So you can face crises. The church needs to be not just pampering the wounded and having people come in, clean up my mess. But we need to be offering wellness so those messes never develop, but victory, witness, advance for the kingdom of God. But that can only happen when you move out of darkness into light, when you become somebody who's got drawing power because you've got staying power. That's what this is talking about. To try to replace the relationship of Jesus Christ with a church, with other people, with another secular priest. It's like trying to go horseback riding where you take the saddle, but you forget the horse. It doesn't work. And that's what he's saying for these people. It doesn't work either. So for the rest of this chapter, he sets forth, I think, four reasons why Jesus' assistance, His counsel, His wisdom, His encouragement is better than anything that a human can give. But you know, it makes us face a critical question, and that is, will we go on in this life? ourselves, by our own initiative, or we would just lean on human helps. He says, don't do that. Let me tell you why. First of all, he says, Jesus' health care works. That's the first blank there. Look at verse 11. He says, Now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on that basis of it, the people receive the law. What further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to Aaron and Levi and the Levitical priest? Why would we even need that? And the answer is, well, we wouldn't if the Levitical priest had brought people into this dynamic relationship with the living God. Now, we could extract for our day and we could say, if going to a family life seminar could make our marriage perfect, Going to career impact ministries and making our work environment perfect. Going and seeing a counselor and making the way I interact with relationships perfect. 
If being in the men's fraternity could give me all I ever needed to know about my walk with Jesus Christ, and I could give it away to everybody, what need would there be for a priest? Jesus, the king priest. And the answer would be, there would be no need. There would be no need. But those things that I've mentioned, their purpose and their intent, because I know each of them, is not to be a surrogate Christ. They're just to help people learn how to find that relationship with Christ. And they keep pushing people to that place. But there finally comes to a place, and this is what we've got to realize, where they can push only so far and you've got to jump. You've got to decide, I'm going to go after that lifestyle. That's what I can never do for folks in counseling. No matter how close I get up to them, I say, you can do it if you just believe. But what I can't do is what I so desperately would love to do, and that snap the will and have them say, I believe. But I can't do that. Only the king priest can do that when you confront him all by yourself, all alone in your heart, willing to follow him. And if you don't do that, all the rest is just dress without substance. Jesus works. Secondly, Jesus' health care is based on power. Maybe another word is provenness, not status, charisma, or the look of authority. And I put look of authority in quotes because there's a lot of authorities who look authoritatively or look authoritative, excuse me, and are not. Look at verse 14. It says, For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. I mean, we have the genealogies, at least they did then. After Rome blew them up in 70 A.D., they lost all the genealogical records, but these people knew at that, that at that time. It says, A tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. In other words, Melchizedek and Jesus didn't come from Levi. That's proven. So he didn't have status. He didn't have position. He didn't have degrees and diplomas that he could say makes him a licensed therapist for Israel. Didn't have that. But here's what he did have in verse 16. But he's become a priest not on the basis of the law of physical requirements, but according to the power of an indestructible life. Have we forgotten that the people we really need to be seeing are the people who've done it not the people who have the look of having done it. The people who have done it, not the people who have the charisma of convincing you they've done it. The people who have done it, not the people who can put on slick programs and make you think they've done it. See, if there's one simple truth, is that if you want to go look for the real thing, look for the people who've done it. And if you look out in history and you say, who out there in history has done it? Where is there one who's risen from the dead and said, I've done it? See, this is the glory of Jesus Christ. This is why it sometimes makes no sense to sit down with a person you don't know and pour out your heart about your marriage and his marriage has fallen apart years before, but he's going to give you insight so that you can manipulate the other person to be like him? Or do you want to go to some depth of somebody who will radically carve up your soul and produce something for the first time that's pure? That's the choice. That's why it says in verse 26, it says, For it is fitting, <laughs> it's best, that we should have a high priest who is this way, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, 
who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins, and then for the sins of people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men, a men high priests, who are weak. That's the problem. They're weak. And here we trust all these great people who can say it well and speak it well and present it slick. And then when our faith is right there with them, they fall. And with it, our faith. They, 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 they blow it out with an affair or they blow it out with some kind of scandal. And we realize our faith was misplaced. But there's one who you can place faith in that He will never let you down. That's the whole argument here. Holy and undefiled above it all. It's Jesus. His is based on power and provenness. Thirdly, His health care comes with an oath from God. Interestingly, He says in verse 20, And inasmuch as it was without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but He with an oath. In other words, the Levitical priests, when they came on, Jesus, I mean, God set them up as a priesthood, but He never said anything about them as if they were going to be permanent never swore anything about their permanency. They were just there, which means there's the possibility of them being impermanent. But notice with Jesus, He says He swore with an oath concerning Him. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. That means repent. You, Jesus, are a priest forever. That's my promise. In other words, He looked and He said, these priests are just temporary. But now that you've come according to the copy, facsimile, facts of Melchizedek, now that you've come representing Him in the true sense, the full sense, we don't need these Levitical priests. You don't need a human priest. You've got it all. And it's never going to be better than this. And here's how you know it's never going to be better than Jesus. That's why when Mohammed comes, or Sun Yun Moon comes, or any of the others, it's never going to be better. And here's how you can know it's not going to be better. I swear it! I swear it'll never get better than this. That's God speaking. So don't settle for anything less. And then lastly, Jesus' health care is forever. Verse 23, it says, And the former priest, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers. And they did so because they were prevented by death from continuing. They needed them because they died out. They needed a large number of them. It's like the lady who you know, was going berserk because her therapist moved away from town. You know, they, they leave, they die, they pass away. But verse 24 says, But He, on the other hand, He abides forever, and therefore He holds His priesthood permanently. He can be everywhere, all the time, in your life, all through your life, and beyond this life. For you. Not to beat you down. Not to cut you up. But to give you insight, and information, and encouragement, and love, and appreciation and reward like a priest does to help you make it in this life, but for you to have the best with no regrets rather than like Lot, the world, with plenty of regrets and having his soul, as it says there in Jude, oppressed night and day by living among the sensual conduct of unprincipled men and women. That's the choice. That's why it concludes in verse 25, Hence also He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession 
for them. I love that last phrase, hence also. He kind of like a little tag here. He says, let me bring it to a close. He's there to save you. But now here's the question. Are you willing to go on and be saved? See, Humpty Dumpty's up on the wall and Humpty Dumpty had a great fall and all the king's horses and all the king's men, they couldn't put Humpty back together again. But there's a king priest who could. Are you looking for somebody to put you together? Are you going from this counselor to this therapist to this psychologist wanting them to do something that they themselves know they could never do? Because the place of maturity begins when you decide who you're going to give the allegiance of your life to without compromise. Would you receive the lifestyle of Jesus Christ here today? And maybe if you don't know Him, maybe if you need somebody to help you with your sin and you don't know where to go, or there's no power in your life, or maybe you've made a mess of it, would you take the opportunity, because now is always the day of salvation, and receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord and King and Priest? Hundreds of years before this letter of Hebrews was written, and we'll celebrate this in a couple of months, a baby was born, and Isaiah prophesied of that baby 700 years before he even came on the scene, and he called him by these terms, Wonderful Counselor. There's our priest. Mighty God. There's the one who knows the difference between right and wrong. Prince of Peace. There's the mental health that we all yearn for. Will you receive the life of Jesus Christ as your lifestyle without compromise, without reservation? Will you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior to forgive you of your sin, to help you learn in a relativistic, vague culture what is right and what is wrong, and to have a friend who will love you while you're trying? He's given Himself to you. It gets no better than that. But it all rests where it always should rest. And that is with you deciding whether you're going to give yourself to Him. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.